I love where Kirk was going with his Peacemaker sermon. And so I just really wanted to kind of piggyback off of that and try to give you practical tools for creating peace because the wrong tools and the wrong ingredients, you're going to get the wrong results. And so we need to understand that it matters what we use and it matters how we use it. Trisha and I, we were having a conversation about context this morning on the way to church and, uh, and how context changes things, Okay. Context changes things. For instance, when we were in the prayer room today, we were talking about how outside, how many of you were in the camp of, it's cold this morning. How many of you were feeling that it was cold this morning when you stepped outside? Okay? And so I don't know, even want to know what the temperature was today. It was mid-40s, I think, right? Mid-40s, kind of overcast. And mid-40s and overcast in, are we in October yet? Almost tomorrow. Okay, okay. So we're still hanging on to September. So mid-40s and overcast in September is going to feel cold. But mid-40s and overcast in January, now suddenly we're wearing shorts and t-shirts and sandals. It's gorgeous outside, right? Context changes everything, right? Well, what changed? Well, really nothing but yet somehow everything changed because of context. Context plays a big role. And so the same temperature, the same weather, taken out of one situation and placed into another, suddenly changes everything. And that's where I feel like I want to land for a little bit today with our focus. Where's your focus landing right now? Because context changes a lot of things. Your situation might not change. It's still 40 degrees and overcast, whether it's January or whether it's September. But the different context changes. Nothing is going to change, but everything changes. And when I was talking last week, I better fast forward a little bit or the same thing is going to happen, Stephen, and you're not going to get anywhere with where you wanted to get today. Okay, so we were talking in Haggai about consider your ways. What are you doing or not doing to create peace in your own life? Because it's so easy to blame other people. It's so easy to blame my lack of peace on somebody else. And what Haggai is teaching us in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, is he's teaching us that it's actually on me. If I don't have peace in my life, it's my own dang fault. Okay? If I don't have something in my life, if I don't have joy, we talked about joy this morning. Kirk asked us to pray for each other for joy. If you don't have joy in your life, it's very easy for you to blame everything that's not responsible for the lack of joy in your life. It's very easy to blame outside parties and outside people, but the reality is that you are responsible for you, just like I'm responsible for me. And so if I'm not experiencing what I want to experience in my life, I don't need to look past the end of my nose. Okay? The tip of my nose is the furthest I can look for the things that I lack in my life. Okay? And so if something isn't how it needs to be in my life. It might be easy to blame outside resources and external factors, but the reality is the blame only lies one place, and that's with me. And I know that's hard to hear because it's just as hard for me to hear it from myself to say that because I know what I want to say. I know I want to say, well, if they would just do this, if they had just done that, if this had only happened, God, if you had only answered this prayer, but the reality is internal factors are what control 
what is missing from your internal life, not external factors. It's easy to blame external factors, but they're not to blame, right? And so Haggai's trying to get us to focus on us. What are you not contributing or what are you contributing to the situation? Consider your ways. I know you want to blame King Cyrus that you haven't built the temple yet, but the reality is you haven't built the temple yet because you haven't built the temple yet. So go ahead and blame King Cyrus, but the reality is I called you to do something, you're not doing it, so therefore you're the one who should be doing the work. Okay? And it, it used to frustrate me as a football coach when my players would blame them not doing their job on the field on somebody else not getting their job done. Right? Or my favorite was when they would blame their opponent for the reason why they didn't get the job done. Why didn't you fill that A-gap? Well, the guy blocked me. He's supposed to block you. That's his job. Your job is to get off the block and make the tackle. Don't let him doing his job discount you from doing your job. Like, why would you do that? And hopefully after 15 years of coaching, my players started getting used to hearing that. I better not complain to Coach Schultz about getting blocked because that's my job, right? Do your job. Do what you've been called to do kind of thing. And you can try laying blame, but at the end of the day, that blame only goes further than the tip of your nose, or at least it should. So tools for creating peace. And the first tool that we talked about is worship versus worry. And the main concept here with worship and worry is all about your focus. Where is your focus going to go in this situation? Is your focus going to go onto the problem? That's causing your distress and your worry? Or is your focus going to go on to God? Who may or may not intervene on your behalf. Maybe you don't like to hear that. But he may or may not intervene how you want him to intervene. Because he's sovereign. And he has the right to do that. Because he's God. And so he might choose a different way to intervene than how you want him to intervene. And I shared this verse with you from Psalm 119. Again, this is David in verses 145 to 152. And he starts off, look at that. I rise before dawn. I'm looking at verse 147 there. I rise before dawn crying for help. God, do something. Help me, God. What in the world? Do something. But then there's a turn in verse 148 because David realizes that, you know what? All my worry hasn't done anything for me. It hasn't changed the situation at all. And so now he decides instead in verse 148, I'm going to lay awake at night instead of worrying about my problem so that I cry out for help from you in the morning. Instead, I'm going to lay awake at night focusing on you and your goodness. And I'm going to meditate on those promises. And notice that, I don't know if you realize this, but David's writing Psalm 119 verses 145 through 152. He's actually writing this and in one setting. Psalm 119 was built throughout David's life. He, was, he kept adding to it. Kept adding to it. Some, some nugget would come to him and then he'd keep adding to it. He started out when he was really young. And he finished it when he was really old. So he was always adding to this, 
okay? Which is why there's 176 verses in it. So he's adding to it throughout his life. And so as he's sitting down to write this section of verses here, he's actually writing this in one sitting, this section of verses. Well, notice when he puts his mind on God, it's easy to realize that, or at at least I hope it's easy to realize that, he's still in the same situation he was in in verse 147. It didn't take him 10 days or two weeks to go from verse 147 to 148. He's still in the same situation, but his focus has changed. So nothing changed, but yet everything changed. Does that make sense? Like nothing changed in his situation. He's still, he's still in a bad place in verse 147. He's still got something going on in his life in verse 147. But his focus changed. So nothing changed, but yet everything changed. Okay? And, and something that I told you last week, I confess to you that I give myself pep talks. I do. I have to. I give myself pep talks all the time because there's a lot of stuff I don't want to do. Okay? And so I give myself, I talk myself into a lot of stuff. Okay? And, and, so, and so I'm always giving myself pep talks. And one of my pep talks, I'm going to share one of my pep talks with you. One of my pep talks that I tell myself is, this could go either way, but I'm going to go one way. This could go either way. But I'm going to go one way. This situation could go either way. It just happened a couple weeks ago. I told you about my minivan that I had a bunch of issues with. And my, uh, not the flat tire one. They're always being a doofus and stubborn. But I needed to give myself a pep talk that day. But we had some issues with the ignition controller in our, in our minivan that we have now. And, and I'm dropping it off to get it fixed. And, and I'm telling myself as I'm walking out the front door of the dealership going, Stephen, this could go either way, but you just got to go one way, right? My situation can go either way, but I'm going to go one way. My situation can go laterally either direction. This is either going to be a lot of money or it's not going to be a lot of money. I can't control that. What I can control is where I put my focus and my attention. I'm not going to control my situation. This could go either way. I can't deal with, I can't, I can't control that. What I can control is where my focus goes. And that's what David's doing here. I rise before dawn and I'm crying for help, Lord. But you know what? It could go either way. You might intervene, you might not intervene. But I'm going to go one way. And in my nighttime tonight, instead of worrying about what I can't control, I'm going to focus on you because you can control. And so because I'm going to focus on you, now what, look what happens in the rest of David's psalm. He gets a perspective switch. His, his, his situation is still bad. His situation is still what he was going through in verse 147, but now his attitude and his heart are pointed in the right direction, and his attention is where it needs to go, and because that's pointed in the right direction, now look where his mind goes. Look where, those, where his mind goes. Look at verse 151. This could go either way, but yet, Lord, you are near, and all your commands are true. 
Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. God, I know you're good. This could go either way, but I'm going to go one way. I'm going to put my focus and my, my attention on you, and then you're going to change me whether my situation changes or not. And that's the key. God's going to change you in spite of your situation. We want the situation to change, and then we'll change. Sorry, God doesn't work that way. He wanted you to change all along. And if he wanted you to change, he's going to keep giving you opportunities to change until you decide, I'm going to change. Okay? This could go either way, but I want you to go one way. What are you going to do? Tools for creating peace. Worship versus worry, right? Worship puts my focus and my attention where it needs to go. Worry gets me focusing on my problem. And so when I'm faced with a situation, I challenge myself. Stephen, this could go either way, but you need to go one way. The next tool for creating either peace or worry has to do with your attention versus your attitude. What are you going to give God? Are you going to give him your attention? Or are you going to give him your attitude? How many of you have ever had a conversation with somebody who's giving you attitude versus attention? And you realize when, you're, when they're giving you attitude, it doesn't matter what comes out of your mouth. They, it's just... It doesn't matter. And you can use lots and lots of words... And they're just really good at dodging them, right? Because they've got an attitude. You don't have their attention. Versus when you're talking to somebody and they're giving you attention, or giving you their attention, now we can get somewhere. And we got to stop giving God attitude instead of attention. And, and uh, I guess the concept that I wanted to communicate to you here is, is when you're in a in a difficult place because I'm not going to sugarcoat this and say that you're not in a difficult place, that you'll never experience struggles in this life. Okay. Jesus is commanding this and, and teaching this to a, a body of believers who are not yet believers and are experiencing really difficult lives and have no Holy Spirit ministering to them yet because he hasn't died on the cross and gone back to heaven yet. And so he knows that when he's teaching this to this body, like a lot of this stuff is, is beyond what they can even comprehend. And it's still stuff that's difficult for us. And so, so what I want you to realize is that God knows you're in a difficult place. And I know you're in a difficult place from time to time. But the reality is, are you giving God your attitude in that difficult place? Or are you giving him your attention and, and what, I, what I mean by that is we got to focus, we got to learn to focus on what God's heart is in the matter. I don't know if you understand what I mean by that. We got to focus on what is, what is God trying to create or change in me in this situation? I think, Kirk, a couple weeks ago you were talking about something that was happening in Shannon's life, your sister's life, and your, your advice that you gave her is how you're going to grow through this, right? Right? Good advice. Do you follow that in your own life? <laughs> Because it's just as easy for me to stand up here and say, you got to worship and not worry. But I'm still worried about stuff from time to time. Okay? We're just going to be honest. Okay? 
I'm going to be honest with you, okay? And so, so it's good for me to take my own advice, okay? And so, because so, if, if I expect you to take my advice, I better be willing to take it. Just saying. I'm just saying. Okay? And so, so we got to try to focus on God's heart in the matter and think, how is he trying to shape or, or change me? What is he trying to create in, th- create in me? Because I believe that God is capable of redeeming anything and everything. There is nothing outside of the realm of God's redemption. Nothing is wasted with God. Absolutely nothing. He is able to take the crumbs, the pieces, the fat, the bones, the, the I don't know what, anything that looks wasteful, he's willing to make it miraculous, okay? And so if you're willing to let him, that is, okay? And so because I believe that, I believe when I face a difficult situation, or at least I try to encourage myself, it's another pep talk I got to give myself, Lord, what can I learn through this? What can you create in me? What are you trying to create in me or grow in me in this process? And when I was thinking about that, I was thinking of another psalm of David's Chapter 119, verses 33 through 37. Teach me, Lord, the ways of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. And here's the verse that really stands out to me. It's verse 34. Give me understanding, because I don't understand, Lord, what's going on. And that's not a bad prayer to pray. God, give me understanding. Help me to see what I'm missing or what I need to see, right? And people are people sometimes. And, and I have students who are students sometimes. And it's a challenge for me to see them the way that God created them to be. But it's there. It's in there but it's not always so easy. Sometimes they make it hard for you to see what you really need to see, okay? But that doesn't give you the right to not see it. Just saying, because it's on you. Consider your ways. Only look as far as the tip of the end of your nose, okay? And so, so David's praying this prayer, give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Lord, Lord teach me what I need to know in this situation, direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward you and your statutes and not toward selfishness. And I like this verse here, and I think, Kirk, you used this a little while ago in your Beatitudes sermon, but, but uh, he was talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And turn my eyes away from worthless things. Get my focus where it needs to be. Get my attention on you. And, and because I don't understand... I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand this situation. But you know what, God? I know you're good. And I know your promises are yes and amen. And so give me some understanding. And then give your God or give God your attention. But if we don't take that stance, it's going to be easy for us to give God our attitude. Say, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Who understands God? What in the world? His ways are higher than our ways. What in the, nobody can understand God. And we give him our attitude. And then we wonder why we spin in circles. But we need to learn to give God our attention, not our attitude. We've got to approach God in humility and realize his ways are higher than our ways.
And our thought, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, right? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 9. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, it's easy to read that passage and say, well, I guess we'll never understand God. But that's not the end of the story. Don't take that passage out of context, because actually what Isaiah is speaking, and God is speaking through Isaiah, is actually a challenge to learn what God's ways and thoughts are. It's not to say, sorry, this is off limits for you. You can't achieve this. No, it's actually an encouragement. It's a challenge to say, hey, yeah, my ways are higher than your ways. But come here, let me teach them to you. Give me your attention and I'll show you. And that's where we need to land Give God our attention. Don't look at their verse and say, well, that's the end of the road. I'm never going to know God. I'm never going to really know God. I'm never going to understand God. Who can understand God for his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher. That's not what that verse is there for. That verse is to say, hey, my ways are higher than your ways. So change your ways. Make them higher. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So change your thoughts. Make them like mine. That's the challenge. And God, his way is perfect. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. I like that passage from Psalm 18. And we got to learn to trust God through the process. And I know I preach about process a lot. But that's really what we got to do. We got to understand that he's good. His plans are good. No matter what. And we can trust him no matter what the outcome is. This could go either way but I'm going to go one way, okay? And, and it's, it's all about getting my attention where it needs to be. And I like this passage from Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 6. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years, bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Now, this is being written by Solomon, but don't you hear David in that passage? Don't you hear something that a father taught his son? That's what I hear when I read that. I hear wisdom that Solomon has from God, but he gained it through his dad. And he's reminding us of something that he once heard his dad say. And so he's reminding of us that. And trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Submit to him. And we don't like that word submit. Maybe your Bible says acknowledge. And sometimes we don't like that. Okay? But who knows what we should do? Well, probably God. And even you know what you should do, but still we wrestle with it. Okay? Acknowledge him. And that's kind of when I left you guys last week with, with the difference between worship versus worry. 
I was having a conversation with Kirk on the way home. I'm like, because I, I told you, I said, worship shouldn't be something that just happens between 9.45 and 10.45 on a Sunday morning, right? It's supposed to be a lifestyle. Well, easy for me to say. Because I'm supposed to say that because I'm a pastor? I don't know. Okay? But what, what does that look like, right? And I wrestled with that actually, honestly, all week. And then I finally got the courage to ask Kirk his opinion on it. What does is, what is a lifestyle of worship look like, really? And, and I think it's just this constant acknowledgement of God in everything. And it's, it's just being aware. I like what you just said, Marilyn. It's gratitude. It's, it's thankfulness. On, uh, we, I took a moment yesterday during, during the prayer and worship service in Pierre. I just took a moment to walk out because we were right on Steamboat Park, which is right on the Missouri River. And I just took a moment, walked out of the tent, and just kind of walked towards the Missouri River. And I'm looking at the bluffs of, uh, of Fort Pier on the other side of the Missouri River. It's just beautiful. And it's just, I, I was looking at it, and it was right away my heart went in worship mode. It was like, I know I was in a tent praising and worshiping and praying, but at the same time, I stepped out of the tent, and my, life didn't, my focus didn't have to change. Right? I, I was in the tent, tent of meeting, you know, and, and, and Moses had the tent of meeting that he would go to, but oftentimes when he left the tent, right away he was confronted by the struggles and the circumstances and the people, the people, oh my goodness, the people, right? And he wanted to just, Joshua was smart, he just stayed in the tent. <laughs> Moses, you deal with the people, buddy. I'm going to be here with God. But the challenge is, and the encouragement is, maintain that attitude, that attention and focus even outside of the tent. It's easy in here in church because we're singing about God, we're talking about God, we're hearing about God, but it shouldn't change the moment you walk out the door. My heart was still in the place it needed to be when I left that tent yesterday and I walk out and I see the Missouri River and right away my heart is right where it needed to be. Well, that's easy, Stephen. You're looking at the bluffs of Fort Pier, of course. It's easy for your heart to be in the right place. Sure. But the real work is maintaining my heart in the right place and keeping it there. And that's the challenge that I face every day, and I know that's the challenge you face every day. But what are you doing to maintain your heart and to keep it in the right place? And what are you doing to maintain your focus and keep it in the right place? Because that's on you. We can try and create a safe zone here in the church where, where it's easy to come and worship and not worry, and it's easy to come and give God your attention and not your attitude, but still, the choice is yours the moment you walk out the door, okay? And that's reality, but yet that's also Christianity, because when Jesus was preaching to the people, he wasn't in a synagogue. He was on a hillside, and the people were caught somewhere in the middle between Jesus and teaching them, and a group of Pharisees ready to accuse them. And they're stuck right in the middle between those two things. And that's where we're at with our lives. We're stuck in the middle. But it's on us, and it's on me, and it's on you to determine where my focus, my heart, and my attention is going to be, no matter what I'm facing. And I know it's not easy, but it doesn't mean it's not worth it. Okay? And so... Let's put that attitude and that attention where it needs to go. So worship versus worry. Give, your God, give God your attention versus your attitude. And yes versus yes. 
Yes versus yes? What in the world are you talking about here, Stephen? Well, what are you saying yes to in your life? Because one yes is going to create peace, but another yes is going to create anxiety. So what are you saying yes to? Because something that I learned, and I don't don't even remember where I learned it from, so forgive me whoever taught me this. When you say yes to something, you have to say no to something else. You have to. I don't like saying no. Well, when you're saying yes, you're saying no to something. So you got to save those yeses for when you mean them. Okay? And you need to save those yeses for things that need them. Okay? And so we, when I was uh, a young teacher trying to get ahead in the school district, I found myself saying yes to a lot of things. Because I didn't want to lose my job. I wanted to look like I was, you know, I was like a valuable employee. And so I said yes to a lot of things. And I remember it was my uh, first year of teaching. And, or actually I think it was my second year, sorry. It was my second year of teaching. And I get asked to be the athletic director for the school district. Well, guess what I said? Yes. Yeah, I'll do it. I knew it was going to be stressful. I knew it was going to be time-consuming. But I said yes for a reason. I said yes for probably a weird reason. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. When the head football coach position opened up, which was the position I really wanted, I didn't want to be athletic director, but I just said yes to it because, you know, because I wanted to not be expendable. And so I, want, I wanted to have a reason for them to hold on to me. And so I say yes to the athletic director position. I kid you not, it was only a month later, and now they are handing me the head football position, which was the position I really wanted in the first place. And so they asked me if I wanted head football coach, and I said yes, because it was the position I wanted. And then... Season kicked off, and I'm coaching football practice, you know, Monday through Thursday, coaching football Friday night, but I'm also the athletic director, so on, on uh, Monday through Thursday, after football practice, I'm painting the football field, but also because I'm the athletic director on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we've got home volleyball matches, so I need to be inside making sure the officials are getting their paychecks. And, and, it's, and it's, it, it was a bit of a rat race. And so I'm painting the football field while I'm uh, chaperoning a volleyball match. I remember we were uh, playing a team. Uh, it was a Friday night, and we were playing a team, and... Uh, it's, it's, it's moments before the game. I think it was like 6.45. And I was trying to finish painting the restraining line around the football field. And I got a call from the team that we were supposed to play. They hadn't shown up yet that they had a flat tire and so they were going to be late. So I was like so thankful because now I can at least finish the restraining line and go into the locker room and at least see my kids for at least three minutes before kickoff, right? Kind of thing. And, and it was just... Uh, we had a situation where we couldn't find a junior high basketball coach. And my job as the athletic director is to hire coaching positions. 
and I can't find a junior high basketball coach. And so because I can't hire a junior high basketball coach, guess who got to coach junior high basketball? And so I'm saying yes to everything, and it feels like it's good, right? It feels like I'm saying yes, I'm doing the right thing. I'm saying yes, I'm saying yes, I'm saying yes. I'm not saying no, I'm saying yes. But my life feels like chaos, and I'm full of stress, and I'm barely sleeping. But God, I'm saying yes, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, really. I don't think I asked you to do all that. But I'm saying yes, Lord. Yes, but you're saying no because I, all the time I'm saying yes to the athletic director, yes to head football, yes to painting the field, yes to coaching junior high boys basketball. I was saying no to Trisha. Hey, can you be home by supper tonight? No. Dad, are you going to be home before bedtime tonight? No. I'm saying no to my kids. Hey, Stephen, this is your brother. Can you guys come for uh, my daughter's birthday this weekend? No. Right? Hey, Stephen, do you feel okay about preaching this Sunday because pastor's going to be gone? No. I'm having to say no. I'm having to say no because I'm saying too many yeses. And in one situation, yeses would have created peace. I should have been saying yes to Tricia. I should have been home for supper. I should have been saying yes to my kids. I should have been there by bedtime. I should have been saying yes to my brother because I should have been there for Amelia's birthday party. And I should have been saying yes to preaching because something like this makes me feel alive. But in one situation, my yeses were killing me and killing people around me. But the wrong yeses create the wrong results. And we got to be careful with those yeses because, and, and here's what I, what I started to learn through the process. It's really not about what we say yes to sometimes. A lot of times it's why we say yes in the first place, to be honest with you. Are we saying yes out of fear? Are we saying yes out of lack? Are we fa- saying yes be- out of some weird obligation? See, because I know that in my life, if I'm going to have peace, if I'm going to create peace in my life, I have to create margin, Okay, When I create margin in my life, I can actually help to create margin in the lives of others. See, when we struggle to create peace in our lives, other people feel it. Other people feel it when you aren't creating peace in your life. They feel it. They feel the pain of that lack of peace in your life. And so I got to create margin in my life. And we, a lot of times, I already mentioned this, we attribute what we're lacking to external factors. But it's all about how we steward our lives. It's about what are we doing in here that determines what we're experiencing out here and what other people are experiencing out here from us. Okay? And we underplan, we overcommit, we procrastinate, and why do we get surprised when things go weird? I want you to turn turn to a passage for me. I want you to turn to Matthew 14. Because I think this is a passage that gets easily overlooked in the Bible. And I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to always get you to pay attention to some of these lesser known passages. And this is one of them. And the reason this is a lesser known passage is because it's sandwiched between two great miracles. On one side of the passage, we have Jesus just got done feeding the 5,000 people. 
Okay, how many of you have heard that story before? Jesus feeding the 5,000 people, the boy with the loaves and the fish, right? Okay, if only he had a hamburger and pinto beans, I told a friend yesterday, because then he would have made chili instead, okay? And so, so on one, one side of the spectrum, you've got Jesus feeding on the 5,000, and then the other side of this passage, you've got Jesus walking on water. How many of you are familiar with that story? What we overlook, though, is what is smack dab in the middle of those two big miracles. Right smack dab in the middle of those two miracles, we got Jesus teaching us about margin. Where, oh where, does margin come from? What are you talking about, Stephen? And it's this. It's right here. It's in Matthew 14, 22 to 23. It's right smack dab between two phenomenal, amazing miracles. Jesus just finished the 5,000. He's about to go walking on the water. But before he does that, in between, he's got to create margin. He's got to create margin. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get out of here. He made the disciples get into the boat, go, get out of here. Just was around 5,000 people just changing loaves and fish and multiply. Get out of here, go, be gone with you, and go on ahead of him to the other side. You think the disciples wanted to leave Jesus behind? No, no. Context of the Gospels tells us that they were always wanting to be with him until he got arrested. Interesting fact. Okay? So Jesus makes the disciples leave and get into the boat and be gone and go on ahead of him to the other side while he gets rid of the people. Get the crowd out of here. He dismisses the crowd. And after he had dismissed them both, he went on a mountainside and found some margin. He went on a mountainside by himself to pray because Jesus knew he just got done with one big thing. He's about to do the next big thing. But if I'm going to live life from big thing to big thing, I got to have some margin in the middle. I've got to have some margin in the middle because it's easy to fill life with big thing, big thing, big thing, big thing, big thing. And there's a lot of people in your life who like to make little things into big things that you got to be at. You got to be here. You got to be this. You got to do that. And they're going to try to take your margin. And you got to understand that there's a time to say yes, that will create peace. And there's a time to say yes, that creates anxiety. But you're the only one who can control whether you say yes or no. Okay? And so if you're not experiencing margin in your life, well, what are you saying yes to that you maybe should have said no to? And so he's going from big thing But then he stops, and he does an important thing, a necessary thing. He does a margin thing. He does a meaningful thing, and he stops, and he prays on the mountainside by himself and just gets alone and gets with God and because he knows he's got to go do bigger things. But Jesus, time and time and time again, and John, you mentioned it in the prayer room this morning about how Jesus was constantly telling people his disciples to watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. Well, if you're going to watch something, guess what you actually have to do? You actually got to stop. You actually got to take a moment and just kind of observe. And you got to get into those moments of just slowing down and getting with God and creating margin in your life because without it, You're not going to be the best you that you can be. We've got to learn to follow Jesus' example. Something I believe is our lives need 
sacred zones. We got to have sacred zones in our lives. We got to. Bedtime at my house with my kiddos is a sacred zone. And so we leave time for bedtime. We go upstairs at 7.30 every night. Why? So that the kids can brush their teeth, they can get into their pajamas, and then we can sit and we can read with each other. We watch sometimes a YouTube video together. Then we lay on the floor and snuggle and we sing and we pray and then we go to bed. And I come downstairs. After going upstairs at 7.30, I often come downstairs and it's 8.30 or close to 9 o'clock. Why? Because that is a sacred zone. It is a sacred zone. And I've learned the importance of not encroaching on that sacred zone. Okay? I know I'm a football coach, so I'm going to use football terms, right? There's a neutral zone, right? The neutral zone along the line of scrimmage here that the defense shouldn't cross and the offense shouldn't cross until it's time, right? When it's time, now cross the line and go to work. But if we didn't have that neutral zone, if football didn't have those rules, you would have chaos. Quarterback snaps the ball, the defensive guy was standing right behind the quarterback ready to tackle him, right? He needed to have that margin, otherwise you have chaos. And our lives need those sacred zones. Our lives need those neutral zones. It's going to be time to go when it's time to go. And it's going to be time to do when it's time to do. But it's time to pray when it's time to pray. And it's time to worship when it's time to worship. And it's time to sleep when it's time to sleep. And it's time to eat when it's time to eat. Without margin in my life, I end up with chaos. I'm going all over the place. Like I, I, One thing that I've learned as a school teacher, it's, it'd be easy for me to just stay at school and work because I like to work. It'd be so easy for me to just work, 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 work. But I sit at my desk and I look at the clock. Oh, it's almost 5.30. What can I get done in 20 minutes here? And I'm just trying to get through as much stuff as I can because I know as soon as 5.30 hits... I've made a goal that I'm out the door. And same, bedtime. I know I got to get seven hours of sleep. I know it. It's necessary for my body. It's necessary for my health. It's necessary for my sanity. And so I work, 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 and I'm looking at the clock. Oh, it's almost 11 o'clock. What can I get done before 11 o'clock? Oh, it's 11 o'clock? All right. Brush my teeth. Turn off my computer. Leave those papers for another time. I've had to learn to create margin in my life. So I don't tell you that you need to create margin in your life to say that I've got this figured out though. Because there are times when I am still tempted to not operate with margin in my life. And so we got to understand, we got to understand the importance of what we're saying yes to. Okay? We need sacred zones in our lives, sacred zones like tithing. Cuz what does tithing do? It teaches us how to create margin with our finances. I got to create margin with my finances because I know, I know I need to start giving some money to the church. So tithing teaches me to create margin with my money. Prayer. Prayer creates margin with our focus. Reading the Bible teaches you to create margin with your time. Okay? Fasting creates margin with your desires. You've got to have margin. Because I know this. I know that we protect what we value. How many of you have a safe at home? 
you, you don't have to be shy. I'm not going to break into your house and try to stay, take your safe. No, I promise. Okay, you can admit if you have a safe at your house. Well, what do you put in a safe? Toilet paper, because someday it's going to run out. And then, <laughs> don't worry. There's, there's still some here. You can, you can roll it into a roll. Okay? 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 No, you put valuable stuff in there. We protect what we value, and we invest in what we value, and we tend to undervalue valuable things in our lives. Ah, it's all right if I'm late for dinner. Ah, it's all right if I miss bedtime tonight. Ah, it's all right if I, if, uh, if I know Trisha wanted to go out tonight, but I, I know it's all right if we don't. We tend to undervalue valuable things in our lives. And time, I know for, this is true for me, and I guarantee you it's true for you. Time is a very precious commodity. Okay? Time is a very precious commodity. And so what you spend your time on says a lot about what you consider to be valuable in your life. Okay? So start thinking about what you're saying yes to. All right. So tools for creating peace. Uh, Am I worshiping or am I worrying? Am I giving God my attention or my attitude? Am I saying yes to good things or am I saying yes to everything? Okay. The last tool is sacrifice versus selfishness. Sacrifice versus selfishness. Selfishness, in my opinion, is a symptom of a fear of lack. And there's this great passage, and if you want homework this week, I'll give you homework right now. I'd love for you to read a passage from 1 Kings chapter 17, because we're not going to have time to hit it today. 1 Kings chapter 17, and some of you know this passage, maybe you don't, but it's about Elijah, and he's encountering this widow of Zarephath. And God commands Elijah to go to Zarephath. And what you probably don't realize is Zarephath is the hometown or the home territory of Jezebel, the very lady that wants Elijah dead. So the fact that he actually listened to God to go to the territory that the lady's from that really wants to kill him says a lot about Elijah's commitment to God's commandment. Okay? And so anyway... So in this chapter, in, the seven, in verse, or chapter 17, God commands Elijah to go to the dangerous territory, and Elijah is obedient. But on the same side, God commands the widow to feed Elijah. What you need to know is that a famine has been going on in Zarephath, a huge, destructive famine where people are dying from hunger. And God commands this widow to make some bread for Elijah, and she gets this command, and she thinks, what in the world? Why would I do that? Number one, she wasn't even a Christian. She didn't even know who God was. And all of a sudden, so I don't know how God spoke to her, but I do know that he spoke to her. So God commands this widow that she's supposed to make something for Elijah, and she's looking at her situation and looking at her, her, her lack and her need, and, and she doesn't want to make him something. That's it. Why would I give up all that I have left? And a lot of times we get selfishness as a symptom of a fear of lack. If we're afraid of losing something, we're not going to give something away. I don't know if you know that or not. If you're afraid of losing money, you're not going to give your money away. Okay? And so selfishness is the symptom of a fear of lack. And, and what, what I think, if you could learn or glean one thing from that passage, if you choose to read it this week, is, is sacrifice is actually the first step to walking in prosperity. Because as soon as the widow went and made the cake, she finally gives in. She goes and makes the cake for Elijah. And all of a sudden, the lack is gone. 
Why? Because sacrifice is always the first step in for walking in prosperity. You want to walk in prosperity? Your first step is sacrifice. If you want to walk, if you want to experience prosperity, that first step that you take is going to be sacrifice. But a lot of times we won't take that ah, sacrifice. Nope, 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 nope. Because because we feel like a step of sacrifice is a step backward. I can't give what I what what I have, right? No, give what you have, and then look what will happen if you give what you have. Okay, I I got a quote from a pastor that I like to listen to, name of Stephen Furtick, and he said this. He says when we focus on our scarcity we start to minimize our supply. When I focus on what I don't have, I forget what I actually do have. And I think a lot of times we need to get our mind on what we do have, what God has given us, what God has done for us, right? Psalm 23, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 23, and many of you uh, know this psalm well, but what snuck into that psalm is this this part where David's saying, God calls me to a table. He sets a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God will encourage you and challenge you to face, feast on his faithfulness when everything around you seems out of control, when everything around you seems against you. And if I was going to leave you with a scripture for second, from 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, the point is this. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. He says, whoever sows sparingly you're going to reap sparingly. Get your mind off your scarcity. Whoever sows bountifully is going to reap bountifully. Each one must give as his heart has decided, not reluctantly, not out of obligation, but God loves you when you're cheerful. And I love this passage because he's speaking to a church who knows they're supposed to give. We've been given tithe, Paul. We've been giving. But what's interesting is Paul knows a new code has been been formed. And so it's actually not so much about whether you're giving or not. It's all about your reason why you're giving and your heart and your attitude behind it. Okay. And God is able to make all things abound to you so that you have sufficiency in all things and therefore then can have generosity. Sacrifice is always going to be the first step for walking in prosperity. Key concepts that I want to leave you with from this, these tools sheet. Number one, these tools aren't for changing your situation. They are for changing you. Because if you worship, if you give God your attention, and if you say yes to the right things, and if you sacrifice, that doesn't necessarily mean that your situation is going to change. What it does mean, though, is that you are going to change. You are going to change. And that's what God wanted in the whole first place to begin with. That's what he wanted. He wanted you to change. So these tools aren't for changing your situation. They're for changing us. Okay? We want our circumstances often to change before, before you know, I change. Well, God, if he does this, then I'll do that. No. God wants you to change. So you change, and your circumstances might change. This could go either way. You just got to go one way. The people wanted Jesus to overflow, overthrow the systems. When Jesus arrived on the scene, they wanted him to overthrow the Sanhedrin. They wanted him to overthrow the Roman government. And Jesus starts talking about how they're supposed to live blessed lives in spite of the Sanhedrin. 
and in spite of the Roman government. That's the big thing with the Beatitudes. We want our circumstances to change, but God wants us to change. The people wanted him to do that. Jesus wanted to change the people so that they could live these blessed lives in spite of the systems that were in place holding them down. He's calling them to live blessed lives, fully aware of what's going on. To say that Jesus doesn't know your situation or know your circumstance is to be very fooled. He knows exactly what's going on around you, but his focus is what's going on in you. He knows what's going on around you, but he really wants to deal with what's in you. And a passage that I want to leave you with is found in Matthew 8, and I promise I'm done. I promise. Matthew 8, and if you're willing to, change, to turn there, it's verses 23 through 27. Because I titled my message, Consider Your Ways, Learning How to Create Peace in Spite of Our Circumstances, or Learning How to Create Peace in Spite of Trials, or Learning How to Create Peace in Spite of Your Situations That You're Facing. Okay, I know what I titled my message because I understand that we are telling you and challenging you and encouraging you to create peace, but I understand also that your life is probably in turmoil. I understand that things are going on in your life that you wish weren't going on. And the reality is that's true for every single person in here. Okay, All of us have something. Look at your neighbor and say, I've got something. All of us have something that we're dealing with, struggling with, Wanting to change. Okay? But the reality is that Jesus wants to change us. And the best example that I could think of with this is Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And it's called Jesus Calms the Storm. Remember this miracle? Remember this miracle? Verse 23, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him without warning. Isn't that what life does to you sometimes? Without warning, I got a flat tire. Without warning, the kitchen started on fire. Without warning, my cousin died. Without warning, right? That's life. Without warning. Without warning, things happen in life. Okay? But Jesus realizes that. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus, he's in the situation. But what's he doing? He's sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! And he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this, that even the wind and waves obey him? And, and I think the challenge that God spoke to me through that is, wind and waves obey God? So what's my excuse? Why am I not? If wind and wave can, can obey God, why don't I? Right? And God's, not, God's not interested in performing parlor tricks on our behalf. Okay? And sometimes we try to use God as, hey, God, do that thing again for me. Remember that time, that one thing that you did for me? Do it for me. I want my friends to see it. Do it. Do it. 
and we treat him like he's performing parlor tricks for, for our entertainment. See, it reminds me, this rebuke here, when he rebukes his disciples, it reminds me of when he rebuked that fig tree. If you remember that passage in the Bible. See, God, Jesus, they want the same thing. They want for your heart and my heart to desire obedience. They want our hearts to be in the right place. Consider your ways. What kind of tools are you using? When you encounter that situation, when you walk out the door today, you got a choice, worship or worry, give God your attention or your attitude, say yes to what you need to say yes to, but don't say yes to things that are going to create anxiety for you, and sacrifice or selfishness. Those choices are yours.